Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Steve Fleming and I'm here with my co-host Caswell Barry. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. And so today we're very lucky to be joined by uh, Professor Jenny Beasley, who is based at UCL's Ear Institute. Uh, Jenny works on the way in which sounds are perceived by the brain, particularly how sounds arriving from different locations are separated, and the role in that which other senses have, as well as how attention influences that processing. So Jenny, hello, thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, So to get you started, I'm going to ask you sort of, did I get that description right? Is that a sort of fair reflection of what you work on or have I missed out any big, big important chunks? No, I think that was a pretty good description, actually. I think, you know, we have a good understanding of how the ear encodes sounds and we have a pretty terrible understanding at the moment of what the di- the brain does after that. And that's really what my research is interested in. How How does the brain allow you to pick your friend's voice out from a you know, see of other voices when you're in a restaurant or a bar. And, and to do that, as you said, you use attentional mechanisms, you use vision, and of course you use hearing. <laughs> so yeah, how, how your brain does that is is the central question that we're interested in. So I think people might be quite surprised by that sort of statement at the end, that what you can see or indeed what you know is around you affects how you hear things. I mean, so what what do we know about that? I mean, it seems kind of weird, although I can give one anecdote which might inform this. So I'm incredibly short-sighted where I was before I had laser eye surgery. And um, I realized that hairdressers, if you can't see the hairdresser, I couldn't hear what they were saying. It was quite an an interesting effect. Is that that at all related to uh, sorts of things you're, you're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think we all experienced this through COVID with mask wearing, right? A mask produces an acoustic barrier, but mostly it masks someone's facial movements and those lip movements are probably the most kind of obvious and fundamental way that we experience every day how vision affects what you hear. But it, yeah, I think it's a lot, it can be a lot more rich potentially than simply lip movements in terms of how sort of even low level visual features. So, yeah, if you look at the hand movements of a guitarist strumming their strings or the bow movements of a violin in a string quartet, you'll be able to pull that sound, that melody out of the mixture much more effectively. And you can kind of play these games if you're listening to an orchestra or a string quartet, you can choose which which thread of the, the music you want to listen to simply by watching the source or the movements of the source that are generating them. And that to me suggests that there's really something fundamental about how vision can help you organize auditory scenes that goes beyond simply this probably quite human specific combi- you know, combining of information from lip movements uh, to help you understand speech better. I mean, how much do we know about how that works? I mean, it feels like you know, the, the what's now outdated view of the brain of sort of all these different modules doing different bits. You might sort of if you, if you were thinking about that, you might naively think, right, there's, a, there's an auditory bit that just hears sound, processes it, fine. Whereas the sorts of information we're talking about, um, you know, things you can see, uh, things you know about the sort of space immediately around you, those are attached to, well, traditionally attached to quite distinct bits of brain. Does that mean there's uh, uh, more communication between those than we know about? Does it mean 
that we shouldn't really be labeling things as like auditory cortex. It's all like doing interesting things. It should be auditory spatial with a bit of vision. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. This kind of textbook idea, the canonical idea that, you know, different chunks of the brain do different things for different sensory modalities has been kind of overturned gradually, I would say, sort of since the early 2000s when a number of us working in different sensory systems in different species, so from rodents all the way through to kind of carnivores, non-human and human primates, observed that you get activity in what, what should be primary sensory cortex driven by other sensory modalities. So we see visual activity in auditory cortex, you know, auditory activity in somatosensory cortex, visual cortex can be driven by sounds as well. It doesn't matter. It seems to be a general phenomena. Um, I think what we have made much less progress on. So there, yeah, yeah, and people have done neuroanatomy that shows that there are some direct connections. There are also kind of thalamic loops that might support these things. But I think understanding what the function of those kind of cross connections are and what they really mean for perception, for action, I think is still a really open question. So we've done some work looking at how a visual stimulus can first of all, in human listeners, allow you to separate two competing sounds. So these are non-speech sounds more effectively. And simply the timing of a visual stimulus can allow you to pull a sound mixture apart more effectively in human listeners. And in single neurons in auditory cortex, we can see an analogous effect of this. So you can basically switch a neuron from representing one sound to the other sound simply by presenting a visual stimulus that changes in time with one of those two sounds. And that sort of low level effect looks a lot like attention in some ways. So uh, in our recordings, these were in, in passive or even anesthetized animals. So we can rule out that it's an attentional effect, but then how these sort of bottom up sensory effects interact with things that also look a lot like attention, I think is a really unanswered question at the moment. And that's something certainly in my lab, we're trying to tackle head on. Um, yeah. At the moment, because I, I don't think, We've really, yeah, there's a lot of sort of circuit dissection saying there's activity here um, and it comes from there, but that doesn't necessarily necessarily tell you what it's good for. And I think that's really the unanswered question at the moment. Like, is it some sort of epiphenomenon or is it really like a fundamental um, mechanism that supports perception? Which is obviously what I would like to believe because we've <laughs> invested quite a lot of effort in it at the moment. And do we know how much these effects depend on uncertainty or the kind of general goal of trying to resolve ambiguity. So going back to Caswell's example of the hairdresser, there the limit was essentially like um, if your vision wasn't too good, then then this was, um, you know, imposing a limit on how much that sense could then resolve ambiguities coming from other senses. So is there a kind of normative potential explanation here where Essentially, what the brain is trying to do is find the best explanation and then it's using all the senses available to it. Or is there something more fundamental, more more bottom up that might be going on? I mean, I certainly think that the best way to see any of these effects is in situations where there is some level of ambiguity, right? If you're in a anechoic chamber with one other person having a conversation and you've got normal hearing, then whether you see their lips or not is is mm -hmm. irrelevant. Um, whereas when you're in a pub on a Friday night and it's really noisy, then suddenly lip movements become you know really helpful to you. 
Um, so I think, yeah, you know, the more that you lean on other senses or you will lean on other senses more when there is ambiguity or noise. And that's probably an inherent property of the brain, I would imagine. Does, does that mean that you think sort of analogous to your uh, auditory neurons that seem to be sort of gated by visual stimuli? Would you expect to see sort of a reciprocal thing in visual cortex and indeed for any sort of sensory cortex that it's all like that there's this sort of delicate interplay between all of the senses? I think that the way in which you use the the other sense, if we want to call it that, the non-dominant sense and what we think of as a sensory cortex probably depends a lot on which sense we're talking about. So that we, we know for for audition, you have this particular challenge where the representation on the sensory receptor surface is in terms of frequency. And there's nothing about sound's frequency that tells you where it is in space. Sounds, you know, two competing voices will overlap both in time and frequency on the cochlea. So you have this mixture. And I guess the other thing is sounds are transparent. So sounds don't occlude one another in the same way that, you know, at the moment you're occluding the shelves behind you. Um, on the webcam, that won't come across too well on the podcast. <laughs> Um, so the real challenge to the auditory brain is in taking this complete mixture of frequencies and somehow pulling them apart and then reconstructing them such that the frequencies that came from one source are grouped together that is, that is in turn separate from frequencies that came to another, from another source. In, say, vision or touch, where you have a spatial representation on the sensory receptor surface, I don't think that same challenge holds. You already have distinct clusters of neurons that provide some kind of ability to spatially resolve scenes what what you might struggle with in vision is things like temporal resolution and the fact that you can only see what's in front of you and that visual objects occlude one another so i think the role for hearing in augmenting vision is probably different and it may even be different for animals like us who have you know really strong um foveated vision you know like we really want to look and direct our high acuity vision to particular things of interest and i suspect your audition auditory system helps you direct those you know a lot of the role of hearing i think much as it sort of slightly pains me to admit it for a primate is to direct your visual system to things of interest um and that's not true the other so i think you know i don't think you would see this role for hearing in 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 scene analysis effectively in vision, because I don't think that's vision's challenge. I think what you'd see it for is directing your vision to particular points in space for resolving temporal conflicts. Um, and you know, then in touch, you're, you're gonna have different challenges and different ways in which you want to integrate cross-sensory information again in turn. So I don't think there's gonna be some, yeah, like some singular fundamental principle of what a cross-modal connection adds I think it will be sensory specific and possibly species specific. Mm. That asymmetry there, it just made me realize that I embarrassingly know almost nothing about how the auditory system evolved. But does that imply that essentially in some animals, the audition might come after um, vision as a kind of extra sense to resolve these um to, to, so you, if you need one to resolve ambiguities in the other, maybe you have some kind of evolutionary sequence in that in that development. So I, I also know embarrassingly little, it turns out now I think about it, <laughs> <laughs> about the evolutionary sequence. But I think you could make a counter argument that would be that actually 
audition is your only long range panoramic mm. danger alert system and there are kind of you know things like even sort of electro sensing in fish and the cochleas exist in in frogs and well, of course they also have vision um yeah I, i'm not sure why evolutionarily there would be a need for vision overhearing first mm -hmm. of all but i'm really making this up now <laughs> No, no worries. Maybe we should move on to things that we we all feel like we can talk about. I have a distant memory of reading something as a child, which is probably totally bogus, where someone was arguing something along the lines of, oh, because in evolutionary history, humans used to hang out around seashores. And so vision is not very good because the, the seashore is crinkly. And if you want to talk to people nearby, then like that's that, there should be some sort of dominance of information transmission via audition. I mean, it's a slightly different thing, but it's what, why is language audit? I guess the argument, their argument was why was language auditory and not like visual, right? Um, I've got, it sounds totally made up now I think about it, but yeah, there you go. I um, mean, it also helps that you don't have to look at the person that you're listening to. Right? I mean, <laughs> what, like awkward scientists? <laughs> well, like if you're hunting, you can shout across. Yeah. The... <laughs> so maybe you could say a, a little about how you do the experiments you described. So how do you actually gain evidence for this, these kind of cross-modal interactions? And what, what are you looking for in the brain when you're trying to um, understand how the auditory computation is, is unfolding? Yeah, so at the moment, we've been taking a sort of a multi-pronged approach, which I hope will soon kind of converge to instead of sort of perhaps circumnavigating the problem, actually answering it. So we do psychophysics in humans, which allows us to kind of test a lot more hypotheses a lot more quickly than training animals. So we can kind of refine paradigms and develop ideas and test sort of models more efficiently in humans. And we can then kind of take them into our animal model, which is the ferret. Um, in the ferret, what we've done is a series of kind of anatomical work to, to look at the potential inputs to auditory cortex in the sort of hope that that would at least rule out some possible hypotheses about what vision might be doing. Um, we've made kind of basic recordings to sort of chart things like as you move from primary cortex to secondary cortex, the proportion of visual responses increases, but that's using very, very simple stimuli. And then we've done studies like the one I described previously, where we record single neurons from, aud from auditory cortex in animals that are listening to the same stimuli um, that we have used in our human psychoacoustic paradigms. And then we try and kind of put the, the whole lot together. Of course, what we want to do and what we're now beginning to do is actually train the animals in the behavioral paradigms that we've developed in the humans to show that they show the same audiovisual effects and then actually record from single neurons during behavior because then we get the kind of trial to trial fluctuations to say, okay, like this neuron um, shows an influence of a visual stimulus and the firing of it in some way correlates or predicts the animal's behavior on a trial to trial basis. And that kind of tells us that well, it, it's more strongly suggestive that these audiovisual interactions that we see in auditory cortex are actually feeding forward into behavior. And of course, like then on top of that, you can do some kind of circuit manipulation potentially to eliminate a visual input and show that the animal's behavior is influenced, but we're still in the ferret model a number of years away from really successfully being able to do that. 
mean, this is the dream, isn't it? Putting all these things together, sort of, uh, you know, behavioral measures, reading out from neural populations and then manipulating them. But it seems that you've made your life even harder by doing that in the ferret rather than like rats or mice that I guess the vast majority of systems neuroscientists, well, systems neuroscientists like me maybe, um, spend their time doing. Is there, I mean, what's the advantage of, of ferrets over rodents, for example? Yeah, so for hearing, I think the ferret offers a unique advantage. So human hearing is a really fundamentally low frequency phenomena. So pitch requires low frequency hearing and you need pitch not just to appreciate music, um, but to separate competing voices. So if you both speak at the same time and I'm trying to pull one of your voices out, it'll be the kind of continuity in the pitch contour that allows me to do that. Um, spatial hearing in humans is really biased towards interall timing differences. So the difference in timing that arises between the two ears because the sound source has a shorter or longer path length, depending on where it is kind of in a axis around your head. Um, and ferrets like humans use these timing differences to do sound localization. And that's really in sharp contrast to mice and rats who, you know, for mice, their hearing range is way above the kind of pitch zone and rats really too. Um, and neither animal can use ITDs. So I think, you know, if you, ITDs if you have being interall, uh, interall timing yep. differences, these, yep. you know, the, the sound localization cue that we most rely on. So if you really want to know how a human parses an auditory scene and makes sense of sounds and speech and music and all of the things that really we think hearing is important for, then you, you need an animal that can hear those sounds. I think. <laughs> and that's, and so, you know, we, we don't do experiments with sort of simple simile like pure tones and, and simple tasks because the people who work in mice and rats can do those experiments and they can do it better than us. They can do it faster than us and they can then use all of the tools and circuit based manipulations that we can't use. Um, what we do is, is try and leverage the intellect of the ferret. So they're also pretty smart. We can train them in complex tasks and it's low frequency hearing to gain sort of insights that we'd like to bra gain a about the human brain, but that we can't because you need an animal model. So we, we sort of hope it sits somewhere between those two things. But yeah, it does make life more interesting. <laughs> I, I bet it does. Are, are you, I mean, I don't know of anyone else at UCL, UC Ferrets, are you actually unique in the world doing this or are there other groups elsewhere? that? So people started using ferrets um, because they're really great for developmental work. Um, the kits are born really quite prematurely. So you can do manipulations that in other animals you'd have to do in utero. So people started using them for visual development work. And there's a number of visual labs that are using ferrets these days, a few in Europe and, and several in the States, many of whom have sort of switched to or complement that work with non-human primate work. In hearing, um, People also use them for developmental work, but there are our labs using them for kind of auditory cortex work in Oxford, in France, um, and also in the States. So there's not many of us. We're a tight community. Um, but yeah, I'm unique at UCL, but not unique in the world for using ferrets. What do we know about um, how this passing of the scene that you mentioned operates? So it seems like something that we don't often think about with audition in terms of like, as you described so beautifully earlier about pulling out the objects of the auditory scene, pulling out the speaker, being able to attend to one specific instrument in the, in the orchestra. So 
what's known about how that kind of parsing gets done and how that object's representation is is achieved? I want to say very little. <laughs> I mean, we know we know quite a lot about the cues that human listeners use to solve that challenge, like which features of the sound are important to allow you to do that. And we know some amount about how the auditory midbrain and the auditory cortex represents those cues. And I think one of the really big unanswered questions really is how you get, and actually it's not a problem specific to audition. It's it's essentially, it's the binding problem. Like how do you get these neurons that represent distinct features of an object to actually, you know, form that object, that perceptual representation that we experience. Um, And yeah, we have some reasonably good evidence that auditory cortex is playing that role, both from recordings, but also kind of manipulating activity in auditory cortex. But I think exactly how it's doing it is one of the big unanswered questions. And I think the sort of large scale neural recordings that we're now able to do alongside behavior might hopefully give us the insight that we've been lacking on that front. And does that have a, I can imagine that has quite some clinical implications as well for if if you're, if if there is a problem with not necessarily hearing per se, but the kind of cognitive level of passing the scene, then that might manifest as essentially being unable to track conversations and so on. So how much in your line of work do you, do you think about that potential bridge over to clinical application? So cochlear implants are probably the most successful example of a neural prosthesis and mm. they probably work so well, although of course they still have limitations because they can put a frequency representation in at the ear, which we understand. Um, while they can help a lot of people, there's you know large numbers of people who either have central auditory processing disorder, so there's nothing wrong with their ear at all and it's some kind of cortical problem, or you know people who have acoustic neuromas or something like that where the auditory nerve itself is damaged, there's no point in in inputting into the cochlea because that information still can't access to the into the brain. So there is quite a movement to sort of develop cortical implants that could help people who cannot benefit from a cochlear implant. The problem is that because we know so little about the code, there is this coarse frequency representation that still exists in auditory cortex, but attempts to use that as some kind of an input have really been quite unsuccessful. Uh, And even in something like the inferior colliculus, which is a few synapses beyond the cochlea and still a few synapses away from the auditory cortex, it's pretty poor. The outcomes are pretty poor compared to a cochlear implant. So I think for me, so my work has sort of two ways in which I, I sort of think about clinical impact. So the first is in terms of just trying to understand auditory cortex better such that we could potentially design a better cortical implants or better signal processing for hearing aids, which are also pretty hopeless for these sort of complex, noisy situations we think about. Um, And the second is I I do do more sort of a a direct clinical line in that some of the hearing tests that we've developed initially actually in animals and then tweaked for humans have now become outcome measures for clinical trials for cochlear Mm. implant users and stuff. So there's a, a clinical trial called the Both Ears Project that is running at the moment, led by um, Debbie Vickers in Cambridge, who is really looking at, you know, the the NICE guidelines now say that children who are born congenitally deaf should have two cochlear implants, but they don't seem to 
use them in the way that you would hope essentially most children rely on one of their on their, on their better aid rather than kind of actually getting the benefit of binaural hearing that you would hope you would get by replacing hearing in both ears and you know the aim of this clinical trial is to train hopefully try and train these children to use both implants more effectively so yeah and we've provided a, a test that's the outcome measure for that so because i'm one of the nice things about being embedded in the ear institute actually is we have lots of clinical colleagues and and you can make these kind of synergies and actually hearing tests that work for ferrets sometimes work quite well for children <laughs> so they're quite simple <laughs> they're pretty similar right <laughs> exactly <laughs> that sounds amazing i, I just want to pick up on something you said that the aim is to train children to use both um, cochlear implants. It, it feels like such a strange thing to say. Like hearing feels like such a basic thing that there is learning you could do on top of it to to improve on it. That kind of seems nuts to me. Could you could you elaborate a little bit? I mean, so if you were to come into the anechoic chamber at the Ear Institute and I was to test your spatial hearing a few times over a few days, you would get better at it, right? You get perceptual learning just like anything. Um, but in this specific case, you know, the, the kids will play computer games that will kind of progressively make, require that they make finer discriminations using their spatial hearing, but, you know, obviously in a very, like a high gamified, hopefully somewhat engaging way because they need to do it repeatedly over several weeks. Um, but yeah, there's, there's plenty of scope for, for perceptual learning. And it's a pain, right? If you're piloting studies because you end up with super listeners in the lab who can do every task and then you bring in real humans and they can't do anything. <laughs> so. And is is there something about the cochlear implant that leads to this bias where the kids have one, rely on one rather than the other? There's lots of challenges. So the first is that they might have one implanted quite early and then the other not for a few years after. Um, it may be that one implant is just better. They managed to insert the electrode kind of deeper into the cochlea. Um, but one of the biggest kind of, I guess, um, errors <laughs> or, or problems that have been surmounted more recently is that initially the two implants didn't really even communicate with one another. And it was the same for hearing aids as well. Each one was acting as its own device and trying to boost whatever sound signals it thought was most relevant. And that almost certainly kind of obliterates your spatial perception because you lose kind of natural level cues mm. and things like that. So we've we've talked about the science. Now we want to talk about uh, the decisions in your life that led you to this point. Uh, I don't know that much about your background, but from looking at your website, uh, I gather you at least have been in the past a very keen rower. Has that got anything to do with, uh, <laughs> with hearing and auditory processing or are no. we just on a parallel tangent? <laughs> no, absolutely nothing. <laughs> are you still, yeah, well, are you still rowing? Um, I have a boat. I still have a single skull, which is in Oxford. Uh, although the boathouse it is kept in is about to be sold. And I am just kind of psychologically preparing myself to sell my boat because I only use no, it a few no. times a year now. I live, <laughs> yeah, I live about an hour away from my boat in a very landlocked bit of the Chilterns. So, <laughs> so turns out small children and rowing are not really compatible. <laughs> small children and a lot of things are not yeah. hugely compatible. Um, no. Don't just <laughs> yeah. need a bigger boat. Like you could. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, really, the yeah. whole point is to escape. <laughs> I had exactly the same conflicts with having to stop sailing for quite a while when my kids were born. So, oh, yeah, I feel your pain. 
Um, <laughs> well, so going beyond rowing, what um, is it in your past that kind of led you into this field? What what really took you into, well, I guess neuroscience to start with, but also what really piqued your interest in auditory processing? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at my CV, it looks like I got about halfway through my undergraduate degree and decided I wanted to be an auditory neuroscientist when I grow up. But actually, it was <laughs> kind of a series of just... Uh, coincidences really as a sort of second year I knew that I, I wanted to do a sort of summer research project because I'd spent the previous summer doing a mixture of silver service waitressing and working in Little Chef and really I didn't mm. want to do that again <laughs> so I wrote to all Those are opposite of... ends of the spectrum yeah <laughs> I know yeah. take what you can get right <laughs> um so I, yeah, I wrote to an awful lot of neuroscience labs who whose websites sounded interesting in London because that's where I lived. Um, and Jonathan Ashmore at UCL was kind enough to write back and to offer me a place in his lab um, to actually to look for the motor protein that causes the outer hair cells to amplify sound. And what that kind of eight week project taught me was that the cochlea was incredibly beautiful um, and that I should never be a molecular biologist. <laughs> it's not my skill set. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I did a four year neuroscience program again because I sort of so I did a degree that gradually specialized in neuroscience. So by the sort of, you know, the January when you're applying for PhDs, I'd only done one term of neuroscience and didn't really you know feel confident picking a PhD topic so I did a four-year program so that I could kind of hedge my bets a bit longer and I was really excited by the idea of recording neurons doing kind of extracellular recordings and Andy King's lab had a project doing this in auditory cortex so again it was really the technique um, that led me to his lab rather than a kind of deep-seated passion for hearing but once I was there I got kind of hooked and yeah I've been doing more or less the same and, thing. And ever that since. was in that was in Oxford, hence the boathouse and the boat. Yeah, so I didn't start rowing until I finished my PhD. I submitted in ah. kind of the January, and I thought, oh, what could I do with my last six months of student status? <laughs> I know I'll learn to row. <laughs> it, was, it was probably a good job I didn't do it sooner because I might never have graduated. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I had a I had a horse in Oxford, so. He was very, yeah, he was very decrepit. I rode him not very often, but I, I had to, you know, feed him twice a day. So I think Andy might have, <laughs> might, might have had something to say if I took up rowing as well. <laughs> this is amazing. You're sort of like full on outdoors. Like there should be some sport that combines horse riding and rowing, like some sort of modern pentathlon, but with more water. <laughs> I don't know. Like... <laughs> Well, barges barges used to get pulled by horses. You could have a horse <laughs> pulling your boat. Um. <laughs> so, along along that journey, have you ever sort of have you ever been tempted away from auditory neuroscience, or is it does it do you think this sort of I guess especially because of a lot of what we've spoke about has been you telling us how how essentially more than just hearing the auditory cortex is or how, how it's sort of so important for integrating these other other sorts of information. Has that sort of tempted you away? Have you, you know, are there other, other bits of the brain that you have your, your eye on or different fields? And indeed, you know, you spoke about um, you know, clinical implications. Do you, do you see yourself sort of winding up doing more of, more of that sort of work or is it basic science all the way? 
I quite like the mix that I have at the moment, which is like mostly basic science, but with some kind of clinical stuff. And a lot depends on, you know, I've done a lot more clinical work over the past few years because I had a really brilliant clinical PhD student who led a lot of that work. So it's sort of, I, I would say my clinical work is sort of opportunities driven. Um, for the fundamental science, we are increasingly kind of, I mean, as you know, recording in all sorts of different bits of the brain from hippocampus, frontal cortex, parietal cortex, um, anywhere that might have some kind of role in sound or be interesting from the point of view of the ferret model. I mean, we, we've also kind of flirted with a few areas just because we think the kind of comparative aspect could be kind of interesting and useful. Um, but I think my kind of fundamental passion is really for answering the kind of auditory inspired questions. And also, you know, like it's a bit presumptuous to think you can just jump into someone else's field. Yeah. With the, you know, with the hippocampal work we've been doing, it's very firmly been with people like Dan Bender, who knows an awful lot about the hippocampus. And I think, you know, we need that. Otherwise, you know, we're probably not going to do anything terribly useful. And this might be going on on a bit of a tangent, but it just occurred to me that there could be also implications of the work you're doing here for artificial systems, um, speech perception and AI more broadly. So I'm just wondering whether you could say a little bit about that, whether this is anything you get involved in or you see yourself getting involved in more in the future. Hopefully Caswell and I have a student actually <laughs> ah, uh, there you go. thinking, you know, he might be doing some work to look at how hearing can be kind of integrated into spatial models. Um, and there are certainly, so for example, Nick Lettiker at the Ear Institute is doing a lot of really interesting artificial artificial intelligence work looking at speech encoding throughout the brain in particular in the inferocolliculus so that work is going on i find it very interesting again it's something that i tend to do in collaboration um we're not kind of actually getting our hands dirty with it in the lab yet ourselves i promise i didn't put steve up to that question by the way just to get to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean there is true though there is you know People working in sort of machine learning and AI have, have always and still do have an eye on, you know, how the brain solves these problems. And as, as you know, you're starting to make like really substantial progress in sort of, you know, learning about the tricks that make the auditory system work, then, you know, I guess the AI people are watching because, you know, that's, that's where the inspiration comes from. So, I mean, and hopefully it goes two ways, right? You can learn from the AI models and test things in the brain and iterate. That's the dream. That is the dream. That is the dream. <laughs> in fact, I think, I mean, in all honesty, I think that direction, neuroscience learning from AI models has been the most productive and certainly in the last sort of five, 10 years. Um, you know, the inspiration from the brain seems to be, you know, important, but maybe less frequent. Every now and then there's a big, oh, that's how it works. Let's copy that. And then busy work happens sort of building on that. So I think it does go in both directions. But it does seem, just thinking about it now, that perhaps speech perception is one of those where the alternative direction of travel could be particularly fruitful because here we're looking, we're thinking about something that is very much grounded in a particular type of stimulus that the brain has to deal with, where things like language, it doesn't really matter whether you're dealing with this format or this format of representation, you can essentially do it all cognitively. Um, and then machine learning could go in a totally different direction to, to um, the way the brain does it. But perhaps something that's more grounded in a particular type of stimulus could particularly benefit from neuroscience. 
All right. Well, we're almost out of time. Thanks so much, Jenny, for this fant fantastic discussion. I have learned a huge amount. Um, I also realized how embarrassingly little I knew about the auditory system before we <laughs> started this interview. So I've, it's been it's been wonderful. Um, but we are going to need to wrap it up. But before we do, we ask all of our guests this um, same famous question, now becoming infamous due to brain stories, which is, what is your favorite fact about the brain? So I think my favorite fact uh, is probably strongly motivated by the fact I've spent the last two weeks rock pooling with my kids. So I think what is really awesome is that cephalopods have not only kind of evolved an eye that looks really, really similar to our own, they've actually done it right and put their photoreceptors at the front of the retina instead of behind their blood vessels so they don't have a blind spot. That is cool. That is that cool. is very cool. Yeah, that, that is, cool. is cool. And yeah, they yeah, taste yeah. nice too. No. <laughs> <laughs> As well. My, my five-year-old was very sad that she didn't catch one. <laughs> she obviously has uh, high expectations from British rock pools. <laughs> I know. That's true. that. No, that is a really neat fact. I yeah. mean, there must be some kind of tortuous path-dependent thing that meant that they managed to break out of this, you know, suboptimal solution. That, wasn't available I think they just to... uh, independently evolved a, a very similar solution. It's just that the cephalopods, because I mean, I think our, like our earliest common ancestor is like a flatworm or something oh. that doesn't have <laughs> eyes. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess what I mean is there must have been a path dependence in yeah. the kind of suboptimal branch that yeah. meant right. that yeah. there yeah. wasn't that solution available. Um, yeah, very, very cool. Thank you. That was a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Jenny Beasley, for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories. We'll see you all next time. We would like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Spear and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. Patrick Robinson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. And follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes.